together to read the chapter. And so in light of that, I think it's important for us to make some observations. We don't really ever typically talk about issues here. We're not issue-driven church. We teach verse by verse through books of the Bible. But we're coming up on Advent. We just came out of Thanksgiving. And so I'm going to spend the next few weeks preaching through Advent and various matters from the Bible. Um, and we'll get back to Genesis in the new year after we spend some time with some people. This is a good kind of Sunday where And I think it's important for us as God's people to consider whether or not God's word has anything to say about these matters. And I think it does. You are familiar with this parable of the Good Samaritan in Luke chapter 10. If you grew up in Sunday school, you probably heard this every single year. You made graphs and all that kind of stuff. And you wrote things about this. So you're familiar with the story. I think sometimes because of that, the stories are so familiar to us, we tend to not be able to to our particular situation. I want to say at the outset that I don't think primarily Jesus was saying anything here about race or ethnicity. That's not primarily what this parable is about. Primarily this parable is about helping people to understand that they are to demonstrate mercy and justice because they are God's people. But because that's the primary application and message of this particular passage, it does very much relate to the issues that lie in front of us. I also want to say that this is not just something that's true for us as Americans. This is true all over the world. If you have traveled internationally, you know that's the case. We do recover the Dominican. I've been to the Dominican Republic a couple of times. In fact, a few of you. Uh, one particular project we did there, a missions project, is we were building a, a wall, a block wall, around this large piece of property that a Western missionary had purchased. And so we went down, spent a bunch of money, hired a number of Dominicans and Haitians to come help them build. Haiti is on the western portion of the island of Hispaniola and the Dominican Republic. The Dominican Republic occupies the eastern portion of Hispaniola. And there's kind of this porous border between them. The Dominican Republic is a very uh, poor nation, whereas Haiti is far poorer. And so what Haitians will do is they'll come across that porous border to the Dominican Republic and they'll work. And they tend to, the Haitians tend to live in isolated villages outside the towns that the Dominicans live in. They take things like sugar cane and other kinds of cash crops and they use them day labor and such. So while we were down there, we worked with both of them. We learned along the way that the Dominicans, who come from a different ethnic descent than the Haitians, hate the Haitians. Now, if you've been there long enough, you can tell a little bit of difference in them when you look at them. Haitians to be tend to be a little But to the casual observer, they're just people of dark skin. But the Dominicans hate the Haitians. Traveling in Kenya now for the past couple of years since I moved there in 2012. Back in 2007, they had hundreds and 
thousands of people who were displaced from the tribal wars, all of which are made up of people of dark skin. And we go on and on and on. Here in our own city, our government has resettled nearly 50,000 Somalis. But you may not know that the Somalis who live around the Morris Road area were sort of the masters or slave owners of the Somalis who live in the south side of our city down in the Trojan. There's significant ethnic tension even among those two people groups here, and we see them as one. And on and on we could go on. This is not primarily just an American problem. We need only look back at the 1930s and 1940s and see how the Nazis treated the Jews. We need only look at This lawyer, like many of those in Jerusalem at the time, did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God, did not believe that he was the promised Messiah. And at every opportunity, they were seeking to trip him up. They wanted him to trap himself with his words. Which, of course, is very ironic, because he himself, as we know, is the Word. And he's the one who had always given the Word. So, 
the efforts of the lawyers, Pharisees, Sadducees, and it was pretty futile. They were not going to trip Jesus up. In fact, what he so often did is he took their own words and he turned the tables on them. This lawyer was the classic legalist. Legalists seek to earn God's favor either in justification, that is, eternal life, passing from, from being guilty to not guilty. So legalists want to pass from death to life, from guilt to non-guilt, by earning God's favor. Likewise, they seek to maintain that favor by their efforts. They will not reject outright, at least typically, that God's grace is somehow involved in enabling them to do so. But there is far too much emphasis placed upon their own efforts, to the point that it diminishes grace and it places the emphasis upon them. This is classic legalism. And this lawyer was the classic legalist. What's interesting about legalists is they have their own codes that they follow. What they end up doing mostly is they end up comparing themselves to people around them. After all, how many of you really compare yourself to God and come out feeling good about yourself? You cannot. You always end up feeling guilty. So what do you do? You compare yourself to people around you. You find the things that you're better at, that people are worse at, and you magnify those things. And what you end up doing is you diminish the things that you're not so good at or that you struggle with that perhaps other people are actually better at, but you ignore those altogether. That's what the religious leaders of the day did. They were self-righteous. They were seeking to earn the favor of the eternal covenant God by keeping the stipulations of the covenant, but they missed the essence of the covenant altogether. The essence of the covenant being that God had showered his grace upon people, and if they would rest in him, they would receive eternal life. So this lawyer comes to Jesus, trying to trip him up, but perhaps curious. How will this upstart rabbi from the north, how will he answer me? After all, I feel this tinge of guilt all the time, no matter how hard I try to suppress it and push it down. What might he say to my condition? So he asks, how can I inherit eternal life? It's interesting in verse 29 that Luke makes it very clear, this guy's just trying to justify himself. He's seeking self-justification through his own efforts. Jesus knew this, of course. The legalist will always seek to diminish the law. The legalist will always seek to do the bare minimum to get by because guilt is too strong. And taking time to ponder where one might end up or how one might end up if one does not keep every stipulation of the law, well, that's just too much to handle. So the legalist seeks to minimize the law. This is one of the things that grace never does. Grace never minimizes the law. That's sort of the irony of grace. Now, of course, the beauty of all that is Jesus kept all the law for us. And because of that, his grace can be given to all who will believe. And then he enables us to follow after the law, though we will always do so imperfectly. But our eternal life does not consist of keeping the law perfectly. The second Adam, Jesus, already did that. So this lawyer wants to know, what can I do to get by? And Jesus makes it very clear the 
this guy doesn't understand at all. And so he uses the parable of the Samaritans. The Samaritans and the Jews did not like each other. The people of Israel had long ago been divided into two basic kingdoms. This happened after Solomon. Assyria came in in the 8th century BC, raided the northern kingdom, which consisted of ten tribes, brought in other conquered people from other conquered lands, and had them intermarry with the northern tribes. Then you had a mixed race people. Those are the Samaritans. The southern kingdom, two tribes, had been deported in the 7th and 6th centuries into Babylon and had returned, but they had primarily stayed relatively pure of blood. They could trace their ethnicity back to David. They were the pure blood Israelites, if you will. And over the next several centuries, these two people groups learned to hate one another. Their religions changed. They looked at one another differently. The southern kingdom, by and large, remained relatively orthodox in their adherence and obey of law. The northern kingdom did not. You can find this illustrated in the way that Jesus talked to a woman from Samaria in John chapter 4. They did not like each other. They shared some common ethnic heritage, but they were at odds with one another. But it's interesting here in this case that the good guy in the story is not the Jew. The good guy in the story is the one that the Jew despised. Jesus did that on purpose. Jesus used his sharp tongue to cut through the, the legalism the hatred, the evil, the self-justification of this law. And he makes it very clear that one who seeks to justify himself through minimized law-keeping doesn't understand at all. And the foil here in the story is the despised one, the non-pure blood. And by the end of the story, of course, the lawyer, the Pure blood, supposedly covenant-keeping lawyer, was laid bare by the tongue of the eternal Word of God. And by implication, I think you can come to the end of the passage, and that guy saw it. His soul was laid bare, and he had to face it. Jesus says to him, you go and do likewise. In other words, a person who understands grace and mercy person who understands that they are to rest in grace and mercy alone, they will live this way. Not to earn God's favor, but because God has favored them. Let me say that again. We do not follow after God's will, seeking justice and mercy to earn God's favor. We do it because God has already favored us. And of course, that's the massive difference between the message of Jesus than the message of his opponents. So Jesus uses this insightful, biting story to lay bare the heart of this legalist and every legalist since. But the message of the story is that God is one who is just. God is one who is merciful. And he wants his people, his image bearers, to reflect those kinds of attributes. So I think this parable teaches us about the heart of God. 
and it teaches us about how the heart of God's people should look. What should it look like? I think there are five basic implications we can take away from this text. First, we all have a propensity towards self-righteousness. Propensity just means we are likely to go down a certain path. We all have a propensity towards self-righteousness. This lawyer is not we are like this lawyer. God's word is like a mirror, and when we look at it, we can see ourselves. Are we more like Jesus, who understood mercy and justice because he gave this story of the Samaritan? Or are we more like the lawyer, who seeks to earn God's favor and seeks to minimize God's law? You see, we can see ourselves, even if we have trusted in Christ and Christ alone for our justification, we still do see ourselves in the mirror of the word here to a degree, do we not? Is it not easy for us from time to time to slip back into legalistic living? You see, we all have a propensity towards self-righteousness. Let me illustrate When tough times come, whenever your resources, time, talent, intellect, money, whatever resource you lay on the table, run out, where does your mind go? If your mind goes to, well, I have this resource or this resource and it will compensate, and if I'll just work hard enough or think hard enough or maneuver well enough, I can get out of this, that probably indicates that your ultimate hope is not in God or in Jesus more specifically and what he has done for you, but in yourself. What happens when those resources are stripped away? Does it rock you to the core? If so, probably in those instances, what God is doing is showing you that you believe that your righteousness consists in Jesus plus something else. But why does God continue to take you through the proverbial ringer? Why does he continue to put obstacles in your path to expose these things in your heart? Because he wants you to learn that your righteousness consists in Jesus alone. Let me illustrate this another way. What if somebody comes to you and exposes something to their words and their observation in your heart. Your pride. That, that touches all of us, right? Your propensity toward anger. Egotism. Greed. Lust. A host of other sins that we commit. What if your neighbor, your friend, maybe a spouse or your child comes to you and says, I'm concerned about this in your life. How you respond to, to that critique, how you respond to that concern, probably says a whole lot about where you find your righteousness. If your first tendency is to, to revolt and, and to lash back out at that person to self-justify, rather than facing the reality of that sin that you know they've gotten right, in other words, they, they diagnosed it correctly, you are probably revealing that you believe that Jesus is important, but you need something else as well. Jesus plus something else. 
That's hard for us as Christians, because confessionally, from an orthodoxy point of view, we know Jesus is our only hope for heaven. He's the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through him. But how often do we fall into a Jesus plus lifestyle? You see, in those moments when your friend, your neighbor, your family member comes to you and exposes a genuine concern that, frankly, you know is accurate, the best thing for us to do is to look at that neighbor, friend, or family member and say, you're exactly right. You know what? I need to work with that by God's grace. You know what? My eternal destiny, my identity, is not found in, in whether or not I get it all right. My identity is found in the fact that Jesus did it all right, and he's granted me his righteousness by faith. You see, these ways and more illustrate that we all struggle with self-righteousness. We have a propensity and this lawyer And therefore, this relates to the issue that lies in front of us today. Because of this, it's hard for us to see our own problems. It's hard for us to recognize that, that perhaps we are part of the systemic problem, not only here in this country, but all around the world, that perhaps there are things within us that contribute to the problems of ethnicity racial tensions that lie around us. I was talking to someone not too long ago, and they were commenting on the fact that black people and white people should never intermarry. In the context of this conversation, somebody called them on that, and they said, how can you support that? And this person went on and on about how he has black friends, and he has had black acquaintances, and, and therefore, he has the right to say such things because he is a person who does not hate black people. And yet, he could hold this position that black people and white people should still not intermarry. You see, there was self-righteousness bound up in his heart. And in the moment whenever he was called on it, he started defending it rather than listening to necessary critique and constructive. I have seen young evangelicals on Facebook critiquing the situation in Ferguson by saying, we will never get past racial tension until we stop talking about race. And one day that will be the case. One day we'll be there because Jesus will be here and he'll fix all of that. He'll fix it all by the power of the gospel. But you see, when it comes down to it, we have to deal with the horrific history of our own history let alone the rest of the globe. Realizing that the sins of our great, 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 great grandparents ripple forward to today. You see, when you throw a rock in the middle of a pond, there are going to be concentric circles of ripple effect breaking in a long while after. And not to minimize the horrific nature of the way that black people have been treated here in our country, but the proverbial rock was thrown in the proverbial pond several hundred and we are still dealing with the ripple effects now. And to my young evangelical friends who say, let's just get past race, it's not quite that easy. Because if you're going to deal with the ripple effects, you've got to go back to the rock that was thrown in the pond. You see, we all have a propensity towards self-righteousness. 
a really good article was written by a man named Ed Spencer, who speaks of Christianity today. I would encourage you to jot this down in case you find it anywhere. And Spencer's basic point in his post is that we will never be able to deal with Christianity. See, not only do we have a principle towards unrighteousness, we have a principle towards nature. That's why Jesus told the story the way he did. Why, why did he pick this story? You see, he was saying basically to this lawyer, you do well on the outside. Everything seems to be good, but inside, you're a man of hatred. If you're going to be accepted by the God of eternity, the one who gave the covenant to you, pure blood Jews, you're going to have to understand his heart. And his heart is one of love towards all peoples. He does not harbor bigotry toward any, and therefore his image bears power. So we have a propensity towards self-righteousness and bigotry. But as some of them become more upwardly mobile, they move more into the suburbs and we have families of those right behind us, which is great for us because it's not big things in the end. And uh, it's nice to have people behind us who think we can talk to them things because we won't be able to talk to them. So we've begun to get to know them a little bit. And the other day at school, our school has a multicultural day. And so people from Deaf and Ethnic, we brought uh, food to that night. And we had people in our school from Ghana and China and Whitney Leonard So she asked our neighbor to come over and help her cook um, this, this food. And so they were talking, and I, I heard them talking in my office. I heard them speaking to each other. And when he said to her, do you have any friends? Here she is living in the suburbs. We have a pretty warm community. Our neighborhood, people talk to each other and so forth. And she said, no, I don't have any friends. Now, how can it be that someone Ostensibly, just like us. We have a house like us, we have cars like us, we have jobs like us. Our kids get off at the same bus stop as ours. How can it be that she lives right behind us and she has zero friends? Now, I don't know that you want to necessarily blame people around this wonderful thing. They're so kind and gracious. I don't know that you want to blame the people around them for being bigots. How could it be that they've lived here this long? They've been here a number of years, and they spend time with no one around them. Whether it's high-level bigotry that would demonstrate itself through words of hate, 
our low-level giving through when we just don't spend time with people who are different than us. This is bound up in our hearts. This is why you see this as a global epidemic and not just something that's American. I think that's why Jesus went after this lawyer here in this text. Bound up in his heart was innate bigotry. We've gone through the process of adoption. We have talked to other families who have adopted within different ethnicities, some out there, other ethnicities. It's interesting to talk to those families, mostly white, who had to deal with their family as they brought another child into their life from another ethnicity. And the tension that it caused with grandparents, aunts and uncles, or other friends and acquaintances, that they were going to go to the extent of bringing a black person into their home. Sometimes we get comments like, well, why wouldn't you just get somebody more like you? A white person. We got that when we decided to adopt. One of the questions that we got was, well, why don't you just adopt from Eastern Europe because at least they can get more white. And if you were to say to the person asking the question, that's a bigoted statement. What would they do? They would recoil. They would say, of course not. But when you take that next step and the relationships get tighter because they become more than acquaintances, they become family, then bigotry And we would all do well, and we'll talk about this toward the end of our time today, to, to take a deep and hard look inside and see how there's things that are bound up. Thirdly today, education of excellence. I think we all have a Not only was he self-righteous, not only was he a bigot, but he was just selfish. He wasn't willing to do the hard thing. You see, if we're going to, as a nation, and more specifically as God's people, if we're going to deal with these issues, we've got to set aside some of our preferences, some of our rights. This lawyer, of course, looked in such a way that he was not willing to do that, and Jesus went after that. You see, it's one thing to say, let's all live in peace and harmony, kumbaya. But it's a much different thing to actually do something about it. After all, you notice here in the text that, that the one who had fallen victim, he was a Jew. He went down from Jerusalem to Jericho. In other words, he's from that area. He was a pure-blood southern Jew. A priest, verse 31, saw him and didn't help him. A Levite, verse 32, saw him and didn't help him. Who helped him? His enemy helped him. And it cost him something. He gave up some of his rights. He gave up some of his resources. He, he gave up his time. Surely this guy was going somewhere. He took his time. He took his money. And probably he went to the point that he was going to accept criticism from his community. Because likely not all those around him would have, would have understood why he was doing what he was doing. After all, this Jew hates you. Why would you help him? And why would you bring him into my end? Why are you bringing this problem to me? But the Samaritan put his money on the line. The Samaritan gave his time. Frankly, the Samaritan put his reputation on the line. Facing perhaps ostracism from his community and critique from those around him, whispers about him behind his back. 
to give of himself to another Redemption does not come cheaply. We see that, of course, in the message of Advent. Jesus took on flesh to come rescue those that have fallen. That was not cheap. That was costly. If we're going to love like God loves, we've got to be willing to be costly. Be willing to count the cost. Be willing to close. I think the fourth implication is that these sins of self-righteousness and bigotry and selfishness, these sins must necessarily be exposed in the process of our human restoration. What's God going to do? He's going to expose this stuff. You see, Ferguson is not just about the ground. Ferguson is not just about the St. Louis police force. This is not just about our justice system. This is for us, too. When this stuff happens, we have to take a look inside. When this stuff happens, we've got to realize it's time for us to consider who we are. Our first trip to Kenya back in 2018 was a time where our, our team got split up. We were doing some different stuff in downtown Nairobi. Um, and I was in the Salome Masuka.
mostly because Al Shabaab, which is the Al Qaeda um, arm in Africa, especially in Somalia, is being hunted down at the point that it makes incursions and fights God did in my heart in that moment is he exposed the fact that, that I still have these things bound up in me. And I think that you, that all of us have these things bound up in us. So what will God do? God will necessarily expose these things because if we are to be like him, and after all, that was the purpose of creation. God made people in his image that we might be worshipped. That's the purpose of redemption. God is rescuing people in Jesus that he might be worshipped. And if we are to worship him, we must become like him. We are to reflect what he's like. And therefore, all the things about us that are not like him, he's going to expose those. And it hurts. What is God like? The psalmist says in Psalm 9-9, The Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. Psalm 12, 5. Because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in a safety for which he longs. What's God like? God cares for the oppressed. God cares for those who are ill, treated. That's what his heart is like. Therefore, we are to be like that. To, to get like that, these sinful tendencies. I think the fifth thing, the fifth implication of this text is that we must all take great care to consider our own hearts and motives. Now again, I think primarily what this passage is saying is that you better watch out for, for self-imposed legalism. You can't buy God off in your efforts because when it really comes down to you, you're always going to minimize the law. Jesus is the only one who has kept the law. Your only chance for eternal life is to trust the one who's done it all. Again, because of the way Jesus approaches the story, he wants us to have the heart of God, which is to show mercy to all. That was the lawyer's problem. He missed that. And if it's true what Paul says in Romans chapter 13, that, that love is the fulfilling of the law, if it's true what Jesus says, that, that to keep the law in its entirety, one must love God and love people, if that's the case, this lawyer fell woefully short. And therefore, what God is going to do, he's going to expose these problems in our hearts. And then we must respond by taking great care to consider our own hearts and behavior. That's what Paul says. We must take great care to consider our own hearts and behavior. 
for rioting, violent behavior fixed anything? In other words, did the response of Ferguson really make a difference? And if you listen to responsible black leaders in that community, they say so. The rioting and looting was a terrible response. There's two things we can say about that. First of all, we understand it. The rock that was thrown into the pond is causing ripple effects to this day. The sins of our forefathers are echoing to this day. So we get it, we understand it. So unfortunate, but it's reality. I think the next thing that we can say is that when we encounter such things, we need to listen. We need to be the kind of people who understand and address it by, by dialogue. And we'll never dialogue until we have the relationship. That is to say, I think we must purposefully, by God's grace, have these kinds of relationships. It's often true for us, mostly white people, that we don't ever spend time with people who are different at all. Now, you can't manufacture that, nor should you try. But I think by God's grace, if you seek it and you try, they're out there. And because our particular city has become so populated by people from other countries, much of African Americans who've been here through a number of generations, people from other ethnicities recently, you know, other countries, they're around here. They're in the suburbs and they're in the city. And often they are very cool. They have no American counterpart, they have no American friend whatsoever. It probably wouldn't be that hard to receive relationships. Gotta look inside. Do you struggle with self-righteousness? I'm telling you. Do you? Do I know what? Do you struggle with bigotry? Things maybe that would never come out of your mouth, but feelings inside your heart. Do you struggle with selfishness? Not just generally, but in regard to this particular topic. See, it's one thing to say my dad was like this, my grandpa was like this. But what about you? What is We must all seek the welfare of our neighbors, each and every one. So what is it within you that needs to be exposed and dealt with? And then, last step, what will you do about it? Maybe by God's grace, what's happened most recently in Ferguson, maybe that will give those of us who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ something to say. And we should. We should get up and say that when it really comes down to it, though we don't agree with the rioting, we don't agree with the violence, we understand it, and we're so sorry for it. We're sorry for those who've come before us. We're sorry for the things that they did. We're going to deal with them. We're going to listen. We're going to take some blows. Blows that were rained down often daily upon slaves that were brought over from Africa to work the fields with rich white southerners. We see the blows that were rained down upon them 
those have consequence. And peace will not come very often until suffering is taken on by those who are responsible for the initial suffering of the others. And the words of those who are sensitive. Peace and reconciliation among the ethnicities of our country is ever really going to take place. We better be willing to take some of the suffering that they do. But if you're going to enter this fray, which I think is exactly what Jesus is saying, you think about the consequences. This lawyer's coming after him, trying to trip him up. Why was Jesus there? Why was Jesus even present to have this conversation? Because he entered into the fray. He came down into the mess. And what did it cost him? It cost him everything. He took the blow. We are called to suffer alongside our Savior. Glory is coming for the people of God. Peace and restoration, that's coming. But it will not come until we suffer. Jesus called us to this. So what are we going to do? As people of the Messiah, we, we get into the fray. We get some on us. We take some blows. Maybe justified, maybe not. But we seek the welfare of those around us. soul work on this. Look deeply and then pray deeply. Recognize that as these things are exposed, it won't be pretty. It will hurt. But if you'll do the hard work, the soul work, if you'll fight your sin, then go beyond that and engage in the welfare of those around you who are marginalized, who haven't as the image restoration process takes place, we must move forward not only in having our sins exposed and dealing with them, but taking the next step and living lives of justice and mercy as Jesus our Savior. So let's all make it to the saints. God has taken his place to know our account. In the midst of the gods and the human authorities, obviously, he will judge them. How long will you judge unjustly? It shows partiality and wickedness. Give justice to the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. This is what your God is like. This is what you are. That's the message. I read to you earlier in that scripture reading early in our liturgy from Revelation chapters 7 and chapter 22. Let's turn to chapter 22.
wraps up the revelation and gives John here in this last chapter of the book of Revelation, showing John what the eternal state will be like when the new Jerusalem comes down to earth. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I love this verse. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That's going to come someday. But do you realize that we're part of that even now? We have the opportunity to live like Jesus, to be on mission like Jesus. To say, even if my neighbor will not enter into the fray, I will. I will engage. I will deal with the things in my heart that are bound up there by heritage and by propensity of my flesh. I will, I will deal with them, and then I will enter in my life. I don't know how this hits you today. I suppose that a lot of you watched the news reports over the last couple of weeks and you responded in all kinds of ways. But nothing else, I want you to just take this text. Ask the Holy Spirit to expose the things in your thinking and in your affections that are not in keeping.